everybody, and welcome back to I Just Want to Talk About the Bible. If this is your first time joining us, then let me quickly introduce myself. My name is Christian Keeter, and I am on staff at an international discipleship ministry called Mentoring Men for the Master. It's based out of North Carolina on the east coast of the U.S., which is where I live with my beautiful wife and our two wonderful daughters. So this week we're going to be beginning a conversation. This is going to be a short two-part series called Abide. And I'm actually currently teaching this at the weekly meetings uh, for Mentoring Men for the Master. So what I'm going to do is something I've done uh, in a couple of previous episodes, which I'm just going to take the audio recording from that lesson and put it here instead of just reteaching uh, the entire thing. There's you know no need to reinvent the wheel. But I just wanted to record a brief introduction and say that uh, we're going to be doing that for this week and next week. And I will pop back in at the end after the recording ends for a few concluding remarks. All right, let's get started. Before we get into the passage, I want to read a, I want to read a quote to you guys. It does not matter what your personal deficiency or whether it be 101 different things, God has always one sufficient answer, his son, Jesus Christ. And he is the answer to every need. We just wrap up and go after that. Um, that was said by Watchman Nee, which um, I know some of you have read some of his books or are familiar with his works. He was a 20th century Chinese Christian who did a whole lot of writing. Uh, and if I remember correctly, was eventually imprisoned for his, his faith. But one of his... Yeah, one of his most popular books is The Normal Christian Life, which it's a, it's a deep dive. You know, when you start reading, you realize I am in the deep end of the pool right now. But, but it's a fantastic read, and that quote comes from that book. But his point is really, really important. He's saying no matter what our situation is, no matter what our need is, no matter what our deficiency is, God's solution to that is Jesus. And we're, yeah, we would all say amen to that, but let's, let's just let's think practically now. When you're going through anything at all whatsoever, a difficult circumstance, you feel some deficiency in your life, what is it that you think that you need? Is my response, I just really need Jesus right now? Or is it, I need blank? Naturally, it would be, I need fill in the blank. You see, we all, whether or not we realize it, desperately want a close walk with Jesus whether we realize it or not. But most of the things we think that we want are actually just byproducts of intimacy with Jesus. So, for example, um, I just want to be happy. I just want joy in my life. I just want to feel fulfilled. I just want to have peace in my life. We would all say that we want those things, but those things are byproducts of being close to Jesus. And if we spend all of our time seeking those things instead of seeking Jesus, we'll, we'll, we'll not get them. Psalm 1611, so you don't think I'm just making all this up, says, you, the, the psalmist is speaking to the Lord, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Yeah. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Dr. Bennett used to sign his emails with that reference, which is where I first learned it. And so in your, I'll read that again. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so again, just using joy as an example, where is joy? It's in the presence of God. 
And you can relate to this when you have, you know, been at a stage of your life where you really feel like you've been close to Jesus, practically speaking, there's just this kind of inexplicable but abiding joy. It's not necessarily connected to a circumstance, but yet circumstances can't touch it anyways. Since it's not connected to a circumstance, circumstance can't take it away is, is what I'm saying. That comes just from being close to Jesus, which is why I say you want this in your innermost being, whether you realize it or not. Another example would be the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, what, what's I mean, the fruit? What is fruit? Fruit is something that is produced, right? And so these, these are the qualities that the Spirit produces. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. It's hard for me not to sing the song. You know, the fruit of the Spirit song, for those of you who know it, which I'm not going to sing now. But you're welcome, Cleegy. But it is, those things are just byproducts of being close to the Lord. These are what he produces. Love, joy, peace, all these things. And so whether or not we know we want it, we want it. Um, Augustine, which it's been well said, if you want to be quoted, quote others. So that's what I'm doing. Augustine famously said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And so the answer to the restlessness, the lack of peace, all these sorts of things, um, we, we look all sorts of places for it. But it's found in, in one place, and it's just an intimacy with the Lord. It's found in intimacy with the Lord. Go ahead and open your Bibles to John 15, and I would, I would love for you guys to have the text in front of you while we talk, because um, I'm going to be stopping quite a bit, and so it's, it would be helpful for you to see it so that we don't get lost. This is... Um, I had two, uh, two separate people talk to me this week whenever they saw the memory verse on how I had spoken out of John 15 before. And so reasonably, the only conclusion to come to is that I have no new material. I'm, I'm kidding, obviously. No. <laughs> no, but I actually want to take this as a brief teaching moment. So often we feel like we need to move on from one topic to another, because this is actually the third time I've talked about John 15 in recent years in some similar capacity as this. One time it was in here and another time somewhere else. And so why are we talking about it again? Because so often with the Lord, it's not about moving on to a new thing. It's about deepening what he's already showed you. You continue to stay in the same place and you continue to work through that and he continues to open it more and more. Like it says in Psalm 119, the unfolding of your word gives light and it imparts understanding to the simple. The more you sit in it, more the more the Lord unfolds it. The more it makes sense to you, the more you see. And so it's not because the Holy Spirit is short of words. It's just because he keeps showing me stuff in this passage. And why would I, in the name of trying to talk about something I've never talked about before, ignore what he's shown me? So um, I, I wanted to, to say that. In a quick roadmap where we're going, I, I don't generally like to be like, we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and we're going to do this. It's like, well, just do it. You know, it's like, just, you know, you can just tell me about it later, maybe. But like, what we're doing here, I want to say this at the outset so that you're not like, this is so random the whole time. We're going to go through Psalm, not Psalm, uh, John 15, 1 through 11, verse by verse. We're going to pause along the way and I'm going to expound on those. But this is all connected to this introductory thing about us finding our fulfillment in Jesus. And so don't forget that as we're going through this, it's going to come back around. But I just don't want to ignore things that the passage is saying. Historically, I've just kind of been like, okay, we're going to talk about verses 4 and 5 just specifically. And kind of ignore the more difficult verses in the passage because there's a few things in there that are kind of difficult at first. We're going to work our way through it. So having said that, let's just get into this. Let's um, get into John 15. Verse 1, 
Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So immediately, uh, Jesus is introducing an illustration. That's what's happening here. It's, it's a parable of sorts. However, in this parable, you know, a lot of times in Jesus's earlier parables, he would speak kind of uh, mysteriously, and his disciples would have to pull him to the side and be like, hey, that was really good, but we have no idea what you're talking about. And then he would have to explain it. This, this is different because Jesus is speaking pretty clearly as to what corresponds to what. And so he starts off saying, I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser. That's the illustration. So like a grapevine. Verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The second half of the verse is what we typically talk about. Um, every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. It's like, okay, yeah, we have a category for this. We call this like sanctification. It's basically um, what we'll talk about, okay, God is pruning me. In other words, he is making me more fruitful. He is um, making me look more like Jesus. Sometimes the process is a little unpleasant, but I know it's going to lead to my life bearing more fruit. It's a wonderful lesson, it's, and that's true, and that's in there. But we oftentimes skip across the first half of that verse because it's difficult. And it's confusing. And we're not going to skip it right now. He says, every branch, and this is what makes it even more difficult. He says, in me, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Sheesh. Do I need to be afraid of losing my salvation? That's the first question that people ask. And um, I would say, no, you don't. And we'll talk about why. But before we can even understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to do our due diligence of a little bit of context work here. John 15, these verses are part of a much bigger conversation that Jesus is having. It begins in um, chapter 13. Chapters 13 through 17 of John are one unit, one literary unit, one chunk. And then in 18 and 19, that's, that's the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection. But what happened beginning in chapter 13 is this. They're having the Last Supper, it's the Passover meal. In the middle of the meal, Jesus gets up and does, assumes the, the position of a slave in that culture, right? And washes the disciples' feet. You remember this. One of, one of the memory verses comes out of that passage. So then he sits down, they resume the meal. Um, there's the whole one of you will betray me thing. And then Judas gets up and leaves and goes to betray him. So now it's just Jesus with the 11. That's how chapter 13 ends. In chapter 14, Jesus begins telling them about the coming Holy Spirit. And how, and he just starts speaking really plainly and openly with them. And again, Judas is gone. And so he's just having this really um, pretty candid conversation with the 11. This isn't to a crowd of people. This is to the 11 in the upper room right after the Passover meal. The end of chapter 14, this is a fun little detail. Last sentence in chapter 14, Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. So the picture is this. They've now gotten up from the Last Supper, and they're walking. And where are they walking? They're walking to Gethsemane. And so as they're walking to the very garden where Jesus is going to be betrayed, Jesus is continuing to talk with them. And so John 15 and 16, they're walking there. John 17, Jesus prays. And then John 18, the betrayer comes. He's handed over. He's crucified, you know, all that. And then he rises um, and ascends. And so that is, that is the context. So why does that matter? Because it says, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Who just left? Judas. Judas just left. 
This is very important. In America, we are extremely individualistic. We think in terms of just, just me and how I relate to the world. And that also applies to our relationship with Jesus. We'll think, okay, Jesus and in, in me, this is what the Lord is doing in my life. We don't think corporately. That's not the way our culture is. And that actually prevents us from seeing part of what's being said in this passage. So this is what I mean. Yes, um, as a branch, you know, Jesus is going to say that he is the vine and believers are the branches. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's like, yes, I relate to the Lord on that level in a one-on-one way. But what I want to point out is this, the vine and the branch, branches is another image in the Bible for the whole church. There is one vine with many branches, just like there is one body with many parts. This is John's way of talking about the body of Christ. Paul uses the image of the body with many members. John, is, or John quoting Jesus here in the Gospel of John, is using the image of a vine with branches. There's not multiple vines, there's one vine. Just like there's one head in the body of Christ, Jesus himself. This is so important to us understanding this. So coming back, what does it mean, any branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away? Ephesians 5, I'm going to answer that, don't worry. Um, Ephesians 5 is the famous husbands and wives passage, but it's not just a husbands and wives passage, it also shows how Jesus relates to his church. Because how a husband and wife are to interact is reflected by Jesus in the church. So listen to this. It says in verses 25 and through 27 in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then it's going to describe how Jesus interacts with the church. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It is very important to the Lord that what we're describing right here, he is going to sanctify his church. He's going to make his church holy. The church is going to be presented to him without any spot or wrinkle. So how does this apply to the whole conversation with Judas? Back in Matthew 5, that's not right. Back in Matthew 7, excuse me, verse uh, 15, Jesus said something very interesting in the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves, you will recognize them by what? By their fruit. By what their life produces. You'll recognize them by this, which is, you know, it's not lost on me that Jesus is using a very similar illustration here with the vine and the branches. Any branch of me that does not bear fruit. So, he says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Obviously, the answer is no. No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every, healthy, or every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And so what do I believe is being said here? I believe that the vine was being purified in a sense, with, by Judas being removed, in a sense, of speaking. I believe that Jesus is going to remove those who are not sincere. And I'm, listen, let me be really, really clear about this. I'm not suggesting to you that the believer who struggles is going to be cut off from the vine. That's not what I'm talking about. 
I will never leave you nor forsake you, declares the Lord. Okay, he, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Anybody who's like, oh yeah, I bear fruit all the time is a liar. I mean, come on now, we all struggle. You know, this is, this, let's be real here. But I'm talking about those who are deliberately insincere, who are, who are, who are um, to use Jesus' terminology, false prophets. Right? And so every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then back in Matthew 7, you will recognize them by their fruits. Do you see how this is connecting? Because I don't want this to be lost. Is, is, this, is this making sense? That Jesus, in his, in his work of purifying his bride, purifying the vine, he will remove those who are false prophets, remove those who are insincere. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus, and the Bible says that God doesn't delight in the death of anybody. He doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so it's obviously the Lord's will that such people would repent and become true branches of the vine. All right, I want to be very, because listen, I'm walking a tightrope right now, and I don't want to be misunderstood. And I'm well aware that no matter how hard I try, I probably still will be a little bit. So I'm just saying, um, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about those who are willfully, deliberately insincere. Now, Judas, some people feel sorry for Judas, because they're like, that poor guy, he was just chosen for the task. Poor, poor Judas. If, I mean, he, he would have followed Jesus if he could have, but he just on Jesus had to be betrayed and somebody had to do it. Um, that is a misunderstanding. Um, there have been, let me, let me read you a few verses. I'm talking too much. Let's let the Bible talk. Um, in John, let's see, got my verses out of order here. In John 12, what's happening is this is right before they go for the last supper, they go to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house. This is after Lazarus is raised from the dead. And Mary comes in there with some really expensive perfume and pours it on Jesus's feet and then begins to wipe his hair. And um, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 12, it says this, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? A, denari a denarius is like one day's laborer. So like three, it, it was worth a lot of money is what he was saying. So Judas said, Why wasn't this sold for a large sum of money, 300 denarii, and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself what was put into it. Judas was the treasurer for the twelve. Um, and he would steal money out of the, the, the money bag. Evidently, this was a regular thing, the way that it's written. Earlier in John 7, Jesus feeds um, many thousands. It was 5,000 men, so that's not including the women or children. So thousands upon thousands of people multiplies the bread and the fish. The next day, they seek Jesus out, and they try to lure him into giving them a, basically more food. And then Jesus starts teaching them. They don't like what Jesus is saying, and so they all leave. And Jesus looks at the 12, and this is one of Peter's finer moments, and he says, are you guys going to leave me too? And Peter says, where would we go? Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to know that you are the Son of God. Where would we go? But then listen to down here in what uh, Jesus says. And this is John 6, 70 through 71. Jesus responded to them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so let me restate where this was. This is in John 6. This is early in the narrative. You see, so Judas was not the victim of fate. Okay, Judas's betrayal of Jesus was just the culmination of what he already was. Okay? And so I just want to be so clear that Judas was, he was fake. And so now whenever um, 
we talk about um, the branch being removed. I, it just makes so much sense because that's what just happened. And that sheds a lot of light on it. So Jesus will purify the vine. Jesus will pur- purify you know, um, his bride. So moving to verse 3. We're going to come back to the pruning part in a minute, verse 2. Um, but in verse 3, it says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. He's talking to the 11. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. There's wordplay happening here in the Greek. Um, I don't want to sit up here and you know, throw out too many Greek words because it just gets confusing when there's too much of that going on. But you have to hear it in Greek to be able to hear the wordplay. The word, or the word for clean, he says, Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you, is katharas. In the past verse, it says every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. The word for prune is kathairo. Katharas, kathairo. Katharas, kathairo. You hear it. It's very similar. They come from the exact same root. And so it means to cleanse, to purify. And so there, there is a deliberate wordplay happening here. In fact, back in chapter 13, where it says... Um, where Jesus said, the one who is washed does not need to bathe except, except for his feet, but is completely clean. For those of you who chose that one, the word is the exact same word. Katharas, clean. Um, this, is, this is going to become very important in just a minute. But it says, he says, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. What's the word he has spoken to them? It's not a trick question. I'm trying to set you guys up for success. <laughs> The truth. And what's the truth? I mean, what, what is, yeah, it's, it's the gospel. Listen, I'm going to read 1 Peter 1 real quick, 22 through 25. Having purified your souls, man, whenever Peter writes, you're like, dude, like some serious changes happened from when he was following Jesus, when he started writing, because he, you're reading this, like, bro, that sounds spiritual, but what are you talking about? And so, but he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of, imper- not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now listen closely. All flesh, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So the cleansing word is the gospel. Right? So... He says, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. One, one more note before we keep moving through this passage. Because, um, I, I, again, this, this passage is a, is a bit of a tightrope. What saves somebody? Okay, yeah, these are, okay, believing gospel, the gospel, um, sacri- you say sacrifice, you say surrender. surrender. Okay, these are all the answers I'm hearing. And so what I'll say is this. Um, according John, uh, at the end of the gospel of John, you realize that the whole gospel of John was actually a gospel track. It's not just an ancient biography, but John says outright why he wrote the book, the whole purpose of the gospel of John. And he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Why? so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. In John 1, at the beginning, he kind of bookends his entire gospel with this. In John 1, 12 through 13, he said... 
But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so it is, it is belief, faith, or our English word trust really captures more of what's going on here. It is belief in the gospel is what saves. This is important while we're talking about fruit bearing, because if we don't understand this, we will think that bearing fruit ha- decides whether or not we're saved. But now let me say something clear. James made it very clear when he says, faith without works is dead. So here's the implication. Your behaviors do not save you. Your behaviors merely show that you're saved. And if there's no evidence for your salvation through your lifestyle, through your fruit, through your works, then it might be time to look in the mirror and ask the question, have I been changed? We don't like that, especially in the American church. We just want people in the doors. But watered-down teaching will never produce robust disciples, it's been said. And so here's the bottom line. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. To think that I am a new creation but have in no way, shape, or form changed from the old creation, that's illogical. Okay? And so, listen, there is a change. And even if the change is just internal, even if it's like I hate the things that I used to do, even if I still struggle with them. Because I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not. I'm just talking about there's just, there's a, there's got to be a change. There's got to be a change. Like Jesus said, a tree is known by its fruit. And so, um, and, and, and one, one more, one more point before moving on. Um, Hebrews, um, Book of Hebrews, I really like Hebrews a lot. I like the, I like when you're like rewarded for knowing your Old Testament, and and Hebrews is one of those. Hebrews, I mean the whole New Testament. If you want to understand the New Testament, study the Old, but because the the New Testament flows out of it, and um, but but Hebrews in particular, if you don't have a grasp on the Old Testament, you're going to go through Hebrews and you're going to say what did I even just read and probably come to some really false conclusions? So Hebrews chapter 10, the author who's writing to a bunch of Jews is using the image of the tabernacle or the temple. Tabernacle or the temple was the place where God dwelled in the Old Testament. Um, And how was it laid out? You had this big enclosed structure and you'd walk through and through the outer courts and that's where they would, you know, do sacrifices. You get into the tabernacle, into the holy place is what it's called. And only priests and Levites, we don't have time to get into all this, were allowed to enter that space. And in there you had the showbread, um, you had the lampstand, you had these, these artifacts that all of them had really important purposes. And I just want to teach on it now, but I can't go down that rabbit, tra- rabbit trail. But what, what was next? What happened next? The Holy of Holies. It is in the Holy of Holies. What was in the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. And this is the logic before, uh, behind the Ark of the Covenant. The idea is that, and, and, and what was in, well, besides that, God dwelled. That was where God's presence was, in the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, depending on what translation you use. The, art, the logic is that God's feet were resting on the top of the ark. That's kind of the picture that's being painted, where he's seated on his throne, and his feet are on the ark. And how do we know this? Because they had built those two giant cherubim on either side of the ark, and the only place you see cherubim are in God's presence or guarding sacred space. It's a very clear, powerful image. But the Holy of Holies was where God's presence was. Now what happened? Or now what separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple? A big, thick curtain. What happened when Jesus died? It split from top to bottom. So it came from God to man, not man to God. So it split from top to bottom. And what did it signify when it split? 
we have access. The Holy of Holies is open. The presence of God is accessible. So, with that in mind, we can understand what this passage is saying. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, okay, hold, think, of, think about what I just said, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you hear it? It's, it's the temple or tabernacle um, uh, imagery, and it's like we can enter the presence of God. And what got us into the presence of God, according to this passage? Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. And so what's my point? If your actions didn't get you in there in the first place, they will not take you out. If the blood of Jesus brought you in there in the first place, and again, I know I, feel you, I probably feel like I'm saying like opposite things almost is because I'm walking this tightrope. I'm simply saying your works didn't save you, your works will not unsave you, but if you're saved, it will be reflected in your life and there will be corresponding actions or desires, a change of heart. All right, so moving on. Let's get back to John. This is why I had it open in front of you. Because <laughs> you're like, what are we doing in Hebrews? So back in John uh, 15, moving to, should have put my thumb here, verse 4 and 5. We'll just put those together. These are probably the most popular verses out of this passage. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Last time I taught out of this passage, I, I brought in a big dead branch and sat it up here and let us all sit still to wait until it bore fruit. And, and Will asked me, he's like, are you going to bring in a dead branch? And I meant to get one so I could be like, yes, Will, here it is. But I, I, I just didn't actually. It was raining all week and I didn't want a wet, wet, a wet branch in my car and so I just you know, didn't do it. So, but there you go. That was going to be a joke. So, but what's the, what's the image here? He's saying, and Jesus, again, painted very clearly, I am the vine. Jesus says, you are the branches. You know, just thinking very simply, if there's a branch laying on the ground that is not connected to a tree or a vine, is it going to bear fruit? No. Why? It's not connected to, yeah, and there's no life in it, you say. That's exactly right. It's not connected to the source of life. And so Jesus' point is this. Did you know that we're not commanded to bear fruit in this passage? Look at it. We're not commanded to bear fruit. You know why? Because we can't do that. All that we can do is stay attached to the vine, and then by virtue of being connected to the life source, fruit is automatically born. Listen to this. I'm going to reread it so you hear that I'm not just making this up. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We cannot bear fruit. We can grit our teeth and try. You know, we can try to, try to be good. We can try to do our thing. We can try to live the Christian life or whatever in our own strength. And it doesn't work. It may work for a little bit, but it just doesn't work. Um, one more note about fruit bearing, just as a... 
One more, one more note about fruit bearing. Um, just to be clear, you know, no, I'm going to say that in a minute. I'll say that in a minute. So we have, there is a command in this passage, but it's not bear fruit. That's right. The command is abide. The word abide is used 10 times in these 11 verses. So Bible study tip, if a word is used 10 times in 11 verses, it's probably an important word. It's probably a key word, and you should probably lean in and say, well, what does that mean? You know, and so that's ex exactly what I did. It was even in that voice when I was studying. I was like, what, what is that? And so we're going we're gonna to do a little bit of work on the word abide. First, verse 6, and then we'll, then we'll talk about the abide. But let's read verse 6 first. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So this is, uh, yeah, there, there's a life verse for you. That's just not one that you kind of embroider and put on your wall, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but so this is very much like verse two. This is uh, very much a similar truth to verse two where I talked through about Judas and things like this. But I want to use a personal example from my own life to make the point a little further. I knew a guy who, uh, we were friends before I was a Christian, and I got, um, I got saved when I was 19. And I thought I had been saved beforehand. I had prayed a prayer. I had walked down an aisle. I had been baptized. I had gone to church and all this. But I didn't actually, I hadn't been changed. Again, the fruit didn't match the tree. I didn't actually love Jesus. I just didn't want to go to hell. I didn't really want to go to heaven either. But I was like, well, if I got to pick one, I don't want to go to hell. And so that was me for, for six years from when I was 13 to 19. But then when I was 19, I was actually changed. And I actually began to, to care about the things of God. I actually began to love the Lord. I actually had a desire to live in a way consistent with this. There was fruit. I had another friend who I'd known for years prior, and so he started coming with me to um, a college ministry. And during one of the songs in the college ministry, I look over, and he's, he's kneeling down on the ground. And I'm like, that's legit. Cool. All right, we're in this. Excellent. And so then I mean, he, he told me he you know, gave his life to the Lord and you know, did the whole thing. Um, a little while later, he just kind of disappears. He just kind of disappears. And so then I, you know, was trying to get him back in, and he just didn't want to do it. And so I sat down with him at Peta Delight when it still existed. I'm still, still mourning the loss of Peta Delight. I know. Well, don't get me started on that. But, and I sat across from him, and I just, and he was just telling me, he's like, no, I'm not doing that anymore. He's like, I'm, I'm not doing the Jesus thing. And I'm like, and, and so I was like, you realize what you're choosing, Basically, I'm like, you're choosing hell. And he says, yeah, I realize what I'm choosing. And he's like, I, and he's like I'm not doing this thing anymore. And I hope he does repent. You know, his time is not up. He's still alive. And so there's still time for him to repent. But in light of this verse, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and so on, and, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If I interact with that guy, I'm not interacting with him as a fellow believer. I'm interacting with him as somebody who doesn't know Jesus. And therefore, my heart is for him to come to know Jesus because I want good for him. So getting to the nitty-gritty, do I think his salvation was sincere? Man, listen, at the end of the day, we can only make so many assessments because I can't actually see the heart. I don't know the intricacies of everything. But from the outside looking in, he looks like the seed that fell on the rocky soil in the parable of the sowers where it sprang up immediately and withered away. 
And so do I think he's saved? No. I think he probably had some sort of emotional response, and he just kind of did it for a little bit, but I don't think he was sincere. And so when Jesus is saying here, if you do not abide in me, my point is this. Those who are sincere ultimately will abide in Jesus. Now, is it possible for a Christian to not abide in Jesus? Think about it. This was a life application assignment. Is somebody automatically abiding in Christ because they're born again? No. And you know how we know? Jesus just commanded them, abide in me. And this is after he said, already you are clean. So he calls them clean, but then he commands them, abide in me. If they, if they couldn't help but abide in him, then Jesus didn't need to say abide in me. The command was a waste of time. But then here we have this verse that says, if you don't abide in me, you're thrown away like a branch and withers. What in the world? This is the point. Those who are born again. Yeah, I know, exactly. Yeah, as I'm thinking through this, I was like going in circles, Mr. David, so I'm totally with you. That the, the answer to that is the category that we call the discipline of the Lord. Where, and you can read about this in Hebrews 12. One of the last times I spoke, I talked about this some, but basically it says this, the Lord will lovingly discipline whoever is his child into holiness. And his discipline is motivated by love. Um, I mean, I've got the, let me just read the passage. I've got it right here. It's Hebrews 12, five through 11. It's not that long. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That explicitly says, if you don't experience the discipline of the Lord, then you're not his child. That'd be too bold of a statement for me to make, but the text makes it, and so I'm comfortable saying that. And so the fact is this, is it possible for those who are born again to not abide in Jesus? Yes, but the Lord is going to discipline us back into intimacy with him. Like Thad said a few weeks ago, God will not force us to do something, but he will force the issue when he was teaching about Jonah. So if we're commanded to abide, which is the, this is the, the command of this passage, we need to know what abide means. Again, a little bit more Greek um, because it's fun and there's more wordplay. So the Greek word for abide is minnow. Everybody say minnow. A bunch of Greek scholars. And so... Minnow, um, the word minnow is not overtly spiritual. It can literally mean just to stay somewhere, to remain there. I mean, in English, same thing in English. If I were to say, I abide in my home, it's like, well, that makes sense. I mean, we call our homes our abode, right? It's the same word. And so, but, what, but abide, the way that it's being used here by Jesus is very special. So he says, not just, he says, abide in me, in me, abide in me. So abide means to take up permanent residence, it means to live somewhere. It means to dwell. It means to not depart. And when it involves another person, like it does here, abide in me, it implies intimacy and fellowship. Stay with me. Remain with me. Remain in me. This is very similar to Paul, when Paul is talking about being in Christ, 
there's a lot of similarities to this whole abide in me, vine in the branches stuff. And so um, back in 14, there, uh, one of our memory verses was uh, 14, 21 through 24. In verse 23, Jesus said, um, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. Make our home is the word mane. Say mane. Say minnow. Mane. You hear it. The words are related, come from the same root. And so that helps us understand what the word means, actually. It says we will come and make our home with him. And so this word abide is connected to I'm making my home in Christ. Like this is, you know, like I am consumed with, you know, just staying attached to Jesus, staying attached to the vine. Back in verse 2 of verse 14, I'm sorry, of chapter 14, really famous verse where he says, um, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I, uh, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? The word room is also mane. And so it's like, okay, this is where I live, mane. And so minnow, we would minnow in our mane. So there you go. <laughs> now even I'm confused. But um, so there, so you see, this is what the word minnow means, to abide in Christ, to remain in him, to take up permanent residence. Let's keep moving through the passage because, I mean, I want to get through this um, in time. Jesus says, if you abide in me, we'll talk more about what it means to abide in Christ before this is done. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Blank check. Let's go. No, it's not. Now, let me say, um, let me say before I explain this passage a little bit, as believers, the New Testament makes it sound like our prayers should be regularly answered. Like, that's, that's, that's true. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For whoever asks, receive. For whoever not, you know, is that's uh, Matthew 7, 7 through 11. So the New Testament definitely makes it sound like our prayers should be being answered. However, even though Jesus says, and, and it, well, let me, let me say this before I come back to that. Um, there is a category for unanswered prayer in the Bible. In fact, there's a lot of reasons why prayers may not go answered. Um, that are even cited in the, in the New Testament. Um, uh, I mean, if you don't treat your wife right, it says your prayers will be hindered, 1 Peter 3, 7. Um, it, there, so there's a, there's a lot of reasons. But in James chapter 4, verse 3, it says, um, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Why? To spend it on your passions. So sometimes our prayers aren't answered because we ask with wrong motives. So... But then it's like, well, how do we make sense of Jesus' words where he said, I mean, just really clearly, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. In 1 John um, chapter 5, where are we here? 1 John, here we go. 1 John 5, uh, 14 and 15, it says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. The promise of 1 John 5 is that if we ask anything according to God's will, he will give that request. So a lot of times our prayer requests are contrary to God's will, and therefore it would almost be a contradiction with God's very character for him to fulfill our request. So how does this all work, though? Notice what Jesus said. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. If I am abiding in Christ and his words are abiding in me, if they're minnowing, if, they, if his words have taken up permanent residence in me, then my will is going to start to line up with his. 
and therefore my prayers will as well. And according to 1 John 5, those prayers will be answered. Does that make sense? Good. That's very important. And so that's, that's what we're talking about here. Um, moving on to verse 7. I'm sorry, I just read verse 7. Let's read verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Okay, tree is known by its fruit again. Verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Again, he commanded them, abide in my love, which means that it's possible not to. Um, continuing, he said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now we're getting some real insight into what it means to abide in Christ. It would be nonsensical if I were to say, I'm abiding in Christ, I'm just not obeying him. No, you're not. It's a package deal. If you're abiding, then you're obeying. If you're obeying, you're abiding, okay? Jesus says, he said right there, he said, um, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Remember, this is not a salvation issue because behavior is not what saves us in the first place. The blood of Jesus is what took us into the Holy of Holies. And so Jesus is not saying here, you'll lose your salvation, but you will be setting yourself up for the discipline of the Lord. And Proverbs 29.1 says, whoever is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. And so this is, again, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. That's not the focus of this passage. We're talking, he's talking to those he just said are clean. We got to remember the context. This is why I did all that setup. Otherwise, we're just going to totally misunderstand this passage and build false doctrines. So let me read 1 John 2, 5 through 6 here. And listen closely with, this, with what Jesus just said in your mind. John said, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, there's that word, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He just said it point blank, what I'm saying here. If we're saying we abide in him, then we need to walk the way he walked. 1 John 3, 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Well, that's troubling. So, but again, look at the way the verb is put, no one who keeps on sinning, okay? Listen, earlier in this exact same book, John says that, you know, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John is obviously not suggesting sinless perfection. Otherwise, he wouldn't have wasted his time writing earlier in this exact same letter that if we confess our sins, you know, and that would be a waste of space. So John, but John is talking about a change. He's talking about a direction of your life. He's talking about, like what I said earlier, about being changed. That if I could continue to live in the same sinful lifestyle that I had lived in before coming to know Jesus, without any qualms, without any internal tension, if I can keep on sinning, to use his terminology, then I, I have some difficult questions I need to ask myself. Was I truly changed? Am I truly changed? One of the benefits of American culture is that it's easy to get into a church. One of the downsides of Christian culture is you don't actually have to count the cost. You know, our American Christian culture, you see what I mean? And so a lot of people have false assurance. And Jesus said there's a whole category for those people who on that last day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this, that, or the other in your name? But I will declare to them, I never knew you. You did a bunch of good things, but I never knew you. And it is knowing Jesus that matters. 
And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I'm <coughs> preaching a different message at this point. So let's come back around. So that, that, that's what we're talking about here. But so we learned that if we want to abide in Christ practically, obedience is indispensable. Let's close out the passage with verse 11 real quick. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so Jesus lists out there one of the um, results of abiding in Christ. It's overabundant joy. He says that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I, I think it's actually kind of cool. And this is, this is completely, I have this written in the margin of my Bible. This passage begins with pruning, but ends with joy. And I always thought that was cool. It's, it's encouraging to realize when you're in the moment. But, um, but this is one of the, the results. And so we just went through this really slowly, stopping along the way. And I just threw a whole bunch of information at you. So let me summarize this in some ways and kind of put this all together in a way that hopefully makes sense. Um, so what are we commanded to do in this passage? Not to bear fruit. We're commanded to abide. Bearing fruit simply happens because we're abiding in Christ. Bearing fruit being, you know, what a life produces. The, um, we would oftentimes think of, you know, good godly behaviors, living in a way that's consistent with the word of God. So we're commanded to abide. What are the results of abiding in Christ? Well, in verses four and five, it says bearing fruit. Whoever abides me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit, right? In verse seven, it says answered prayer. Because we're praying, praying the, word, the, the will of God. In verse 11, it says overabundant joy. And then verse uh, 10 says, intimacy with the Lord, abide in my love. Right? And so, bearing fruit, answered prayer, overabundant joy, and intimacy with the Lord. So, these are the results of abiding. And so now it comes into the, the really practical, but how? How do we do this? There are two ways that rise to the surface from this passage. And again, man, we could exhaust so many more passages of Scripture that show the results of abiding and practice, you know, but we're just looking specifically at this passage because this is the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. And he didn't, you know, he wasn't saying to them, hey, I'm going to say this, but then I want you to go think about it. You know, it's like, no, he's just having, he's teaching them something in this moment. So let's look at what he said. So two ways to practically abide in Christ. First is listed in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. His words abiding in us is the first way. Now, um, what does it mean for his words to abide in us? Uh, we, it doesn't just mean reading your Bible, although that's great. It doesn't just mean memorizing your Bible, although that's great. It doesn't mean studying your Bible, although that's great. All those things are important, and all those are part of the process, but they are not the, the actual thing here. We have this uh, thing we call biblical meditation, meditating on the word day and night. Psalm, Psalm 1 says the one who meditates on the word day and night, he's, going, he's the one who's going to prosper. And it isn't lost on me that the image in Psalm 1 is a tree planted by streams of water and he'll bear fruit in a season. I mean, this is all over the place. And so what does it mean to meditate on the scriptures? Well, it means to store them inside of ourselves by memorization as a first step so that we can Think about them all day long because we typically leave Jesus in the prayer closet. We'll get up and read our Bibles and then go throughout our day and maybe pray before we go to bed, but that's kind of it. 
And it says day and night meditation. You know, it says, but blessed is, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's Psalm 1, 1 and 2. And so day and night meditation. So yes, I'm, I'm, I'm think, I, I'll take a passage of scripture, I'll think about it, I'll memorize it, I'll roll it over in my mind all day long, I'll ask questions of it, I'll see how it applies to my life. And one practice I've tried to develop that somebody recommended to me is fall asleep med- meditating on the scriptures. Day and night meditation. Because, side note, um, in, in creation, days began in the evening. You know, There was evening and then there was morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. In Jewish reckoning, a new day began at sunset. And so I'm thinking in, in my mind, which by the way is how Jesus was on the cross for three days. A lot of people are like, it wasn't exactly 72 hours. And it's like, well, if you actually look at the reckoning of the day, it was the third day when he rose because it was before sunset on Friday, but we can talk about that some other time. But, and so I was like, yeah, I want to start my new day meditating on the word of God, basically. So day and night meditation. Um, and meditation comes with prayer. Psalm 119, 18, the psalmist prayed, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. It is rolling a scripture over in your mind again and again and again, thinking about it, trying to obey it, and then asking God, make this real to me. Help me to understand. Open my eyes, please. And as we go through that process, the Holy Spirit will do a work in us where the scriptures become real to us. You can relate to this. Um, So the first one's meditating on the word. Second one is obedience. You obey. Um, one of the pastors at my church made a really good statement. He said, um, when you ignore God's instructions, do not expect to receive his blessing. That's good. When you ignore his instructions, do not expect to receive his blessing. Um, because God is not going to bless disobedience. You remember in Deuteronomy 5, the people were really in awe of God, honoring him, respecting him, revering him, fearful even. And the Lord said, he said, oh, that this people had a heart such as this to fear me always and to keep my commands, that it may go well with them. God is saying, if they would just obey me, it would go well with them. And therefore, you see the Lord's heart to bless. But how could he bless disobedience? How could he reward behavior that's contrary to his character? Right. And so, so meditating on the scriptures and obedience. We have to obey Jesus. If we are not obeying Jesus, we are not abiding. And therefore, you know, this whole abide in my love, whoever keeps my commandments will abide in my love. Obedience leads to intimacy. Jesus said back in uh, verse 21 of chapter 14, he says, um, let's see, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You want Jesus to be more real to you? Start obeying him. Start obeying Jesus, and he'll become very real to you in a powerful way. So this leads to one practical conclusion. The need of repentance. Repentance, which we'll talk more about next week. Repentance means a change of mind, which leads to a change in lifestyle. It's the Greek word metanoia. And or metanaeo, depending on, I guess the conjugation. But it um, it means to a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. Repentance is not just something you do when you're saved. That there is an initial repentance that brings you into the the flock of God. Absolutely, that initially connects you to the vine. 
But repentance should be a regular part of the life of every single Christian. And we know this intuitively. What do, we, what do we mean when we say, well, the Holy Spirit's going to sanctify me and make me look like Jesus? Well, repentance has to be a part of that because that implies that there are parts of me that don't look like Jesus. And I need to stop those things. I need to change my thinking about those and start to obey him in those areas. Word of caution. I don't necessarily, it's good to look in the mirror about these things, but it's dangerous to stare in the mirror. And this is what I mean. Um, it's good to say, okay, is there any area of my life that I know where God is not first? It's good to ask yourself that question. But if you get too reflective on that, it is a downward spiral and the enemy is going to come in with all sorts of accusations and you're just going to be ruined. It's just going to ruin you and wreck you. And so this is what I advise. If there is an area that you know that currently doesn't line up with the Lord, repent and start obeying. Then it's still safe to say, okay, well, is there one? And if you can't think of one pretty quickly, at that point, you give it to the Holy Spirit. Because it's, he's the one who convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so you say, Lord, I don't know of anything in my life right now that's contrary to your will and your word, but I want to, if there's something. I'm not going to go searching on it. I'm not going to you know, focus completely on myself. I'm just going to you know, do my best to love and obey Jesus and follow him and love other people. Too much introspection is actually just self-centeredness. That's important. And so I'm just going to do my best. But Lord, if there's something, please show me so that I can repent. Repentance. Next week, we're going to talk a lot about repentance and some of the hindrances to it. Let me go ahead and give you your assignment. Keep in John 15, 1 through 11. But we're going to have Matthew 4, 17. And then 1 John 1, 9. Matthew 4, 17, and 1 John 1, 9. And if you already know 1 John 1, 9, don't cop out and just do that one. Because <laughs> like the majority of people in this room know that already. It's a, sorry, Cleegy. And so then, just, just two questions. Two questions as well. Is there an area of your life where you really struggle to obey the Lord? Again, a little bit of reflection is fine. Too much introspection, dangerous. Just, just does, does anything come to your mind immediately? If not, just ask Jesus about this. Is there an area of your life where you really struggle to obey the Lord? And the second question is, is repentance a consistent part of your walk with the Lord? Why or why not? Yeah, the second one is, is repentance a consistent part of your walk with the Lord? Why or why not? So obviously those will be sent out. But like I said, whether we realize it or not, we have a great desire to abide in Christ. We think we want the byproducts of it. What we really want is Jesus. And we will not be fulfilled until we are practically abiding in him. It just never will be enough. We'll have moments of excitement and things like that, but there's always going to be something missing. Again, as Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your spirit, Lord. God, we acknowledge and agree with what you said, Jesus, in this passage, that apart from you, we can do nothing. We can do nothing apart from you. All we are commanded to do is abide in you, Lord. Um, we need your blessing. We need your help. We need your empowerment, Lord. And so, God, I pray that you show us if there's some area of our life that's not consistent with your word, and that you give us the courage and strength to repent of it.
so that we can practically abide in Christ. Because Lord, you said the one who abides in you will bear much fruit. It's been well said, I heard it said, that you are not seeking a display of my Christ-likeness, but you're seeking a manifestation of your Christ. It's not about me just cleaning myself and looking good. It's about Jesus living his life through me. And that happens only as we stay attached to the vine. And so, dear Jesus, please help us to do that. Lord, we love you and we need you. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, everybody. Well, I hope that that was encouraging and beneficial and that the Lord spoke to you through it. Like I said, this is just the first week of two, and so we will carry on this conversation next week. As always, if you have any comments or questions or anything like that, feel free to email me at ijustwanttotalkabout at gmail.com. All right, guys, I hope you'll have a great week. God bless you.